Thank you so much for joining us for today's podcast. We'll get started in just a moment. If this is your first time here, please consider subscribing so that you may stay up to date with the latest podcast. And if our podcast brings value to your life, please consider sharing it with family and friends. Thanks for listening. And now here's today's podcast. Thanks for joining us for the Covenant Living Broadcast with Pastor John Butler of Covenant Life Church, located at 130 Atlantic Avenue in Bremen, Georgia. Exodus chapter 3. If you would like to go to the Version Bible app and you can search this event today for Covenant Life Church and uh, you can follow along. The, the scriptures will be there. The points will be there. And some action items and links will be there that you might want access to as well. Okay, so today we're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about vision, and we're going to talk about an opportunity that God has opened the doors for, and uh, that I need to share uh, with everybody and let you know. Okay, Exodus chapter three, <clears throat> verse seven. Then the Lord told him, "Him is Moses. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers." Yes, I am aware of their suffering. Look at verse 10. Now go, for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people out of Egypt. Now uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. If you read the rest of of chapter 3, you hear excuse after excuse from Moses. And then it says, but Moses protested again. What if they won't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? And verse 2, the Lord asked him, what is that in your hand? A shepherd's staff, Moses replied. In verse 3, he said, the Lord said, throw it on the ground. Uh, And so Moses threw down the staff and it turned into a snake. And Moses jumped back because Moses has sense. Uh, Verse 4, then the Lord told him, reach out and grab its tail. And Moses said, say what? No, Moses reached out and grabbed it. And it turned back into a shepherd's staff in his hand. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you give us the privilege of serving you, that you have made a way for us to be uh, in your presence, to be in your family. And God, we just give you all the praise and all the glory for that because it's not anything that we've done. We are saved by grace through faith. And Lord, it was all you. And we just say thank you for that today. We pray that you'd bless our time together. You'd open our minds, our ears, and our hearts, Lord, to hear what you're saying to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're talking about vision today. Hard to to define sometimes. I think maybe the best definition I've heard is from leadership guru and and pastor Andy Stanley. And he says that vision is, and this is a little bit of a paraphrase, but he said vision is a mental picture of what could be. So it's possible. A mental picture of what could be with the passion or the conviction that it must be. It's a mental picture of what could be with a passion and conviction that it must be. The vision of our church was birthed out of that concept because we believe that we are and that we must be a church that is real and relational and reaching, right? That's that's been been the, the, the words that we use to describe ourselves for the last seven years. Real, 
relational, and reaching. And everything that we do is an outgrowth of that vision. That's what we, what we believe. Now, we have owned the commercial property next door, what used to be called the Antique Mall. Uh, we've owned this property since 2011. And we have been pursuing, uh, asking God for a vision for that property. Now, we've had lots of good ideas. It's not that we were running short of good ideas of things that we could do with them. What I was lacking was the must-be element, right? The must-be. I didn't just need a good idea. I needed a God idea. I needed something that I knew as the pastor of this church that I could say unequivocally that God was calling us to do. And in the fall of 2018, I heard Pastor Bruce Deal speak. He's the founder of the City of Refuge in Atlanta. And I heard him talk about the issue of human sex trafficking, which because we have little ears in the room today, I'm going to call HST for the rest of the time. You're welcome. Now, uh, and, and when I heard him speak about that, I found our must be. I found our must be. And the last year and a half has been about preparing and about planning and about sort of launching into this issue and what has become known as the Jericho Project. And we talked about that uh, beginning in November. We started talking about that. I can stand here today and I can tell you that I have no doubt in my mind that the Jericho Project must be. It must be. We have to do what we can to fight HST. It's not a problem that's just in Cambodia. It's not a problem that's just in South America or that's in Thailand or, or that's in India. It is right here and it's right now. It's that pervasive. We must get in this fight. And I believe that God has chosen this church on purpose that he chose us for this purpose because we, are, we, are, we have a commitment to being real and to being reaching, and, and we have a commitment to being relational to the extent that there is a grace that's here that, will, that will, God will be able to use to be part of the solution, part of the solution. So uh, the, the Jericho Project must be. And we said from the beginning that we were open to doing whatever it took, whatever was needed to help those who were already in this fight because we recognize that we didn't just we didn't just see this and declare this in the last few months. There've been people in this fight on the front lines for years. And so we wanted to do whatever we needed to do to to go through the open doors that God sets in front of us. And the reality is this Though we've broken this Jericho project up into phases, into achievable phases, the reality is we are still years away from being able to convert this property into anything that's usable um, in, in, in reality. So that brings us back to the scripture that we, just, that we just read, a principle that we found in our opening scripture. God told Moses, my people are suffering. My people are enslaved. My people are oppressed. And God said, I see it, and I hear their cries, and I know about it, and I'm ready to do something about it, and I've called you to lead them out. And Moses sort of famously freaked out, right? Every excuse in the book, I'm not able, I don't know if I can do this, I'm not qualified, everything he could think of. And he finally said to the Lord, what if they don't even believe you sent me? 
right? God called me to do something. What if they don't believe God called me to do something? And, and so that's what he asked God. What if I, they don't believe that you sent me? And, and Moses probably expected some grand and glorious answer from above, right? Some incredible riddle or miraculous sign from heaven, some manifestation in the throne room of Pharaoh that would remove all doubts that God had sent him, something like that anyway. But God answered Moses' question with a question of his own. God looked at Moses or spoke to him from the burning bush. He, He spoke to him and said, what is that in your hand? What is that in your hand? And the answer to that was pretty simple. Moses said, it's a shepherd's staff. It's a shepherd's staff. It's a shepherd's staff because for the last 40 years, Moses had been a shepherd. It's what he knew. It's what was familiar to him. It's what he was comfortable with. It's what he had. And God told him, throw it down, and it became a snake. And then he told him to pick it up, which is the problem I would have had a uh, a thing I would have had a hard time with. Um, But Moses being, I don't, he wouldn't go and speak to Pharaoh, but he's going to grab a snake by the tail? We've got to have some problems, some conversations here. But he reached down and grabbed the snake, picked it up, and it became a staff again. What was God saying to Moses? He was saying, I chose you for a reason. I chose you for a reason. I, I don't have to provide anything more than you already have. You think your past as a shepherd has disqualified you from serving me, but I'm telling you I've been preparing you for this the whole time. You've been focused on some big miraculous thing, but I can do more with what you already have in your hand than you can imagine. So the question is, what's that in your hand, Moses? And God, God's telling him, use that. Use that. You say, John, that's really interesting, but it sounds like you've started two different messages. I don't really know what this has to do with the Jericho Project. Well, here it is. God has called us to get in this fight He's called us. These women are in need right now. They are enslaved. They are in bondage. They are oppressed. And God wants to deliver those, his children, from HST right now. Some of them will not survive three more years. Some of them will not be here in five more years while we're raising money. So so let me ask you this this morning. What's that in your hand, Covenant Life? What's in your hand? What can we do right now? Now, in addition to the commercial property that we have next door um, and this sanctuary that we're meeting in, we have a 15,000 square foot building uh, that we call the Coley Building. It's, uh, if you've never been in there, it's a lot bigger than it looks. Once you get inside, it's like the hallway goes on forever. It, it's a big building. There's, there's offices, there's classrooms, there's meeting spaces. Um, and, and quite honestly, some of these rooms, some of these spaces are used one to three hours a week, if that. Out of 168 hours in a week, one to three of them are, are, are being used. Some of those rooms and spaces in that place are being used maybe once a month or less. And we, we say, as Christians, don't we say that everything we have belongs to God? Don't we like to say that? Oh, everything I've got is from him and for him, right? And we, and we like to say that we, we want to see his kingdom come and his will be done, and we want to use everything we have to see that happen. So here's my question. What if we could use the space that we have? What if we could use what was already in our hand to launch the Jericho Project in a matter of months instead of a matter of years? 
what if we could continue to, uh, to use the building for the, for the reasons and purposes of ministry that we have, for kids' ministry, for student ministry? What if we could continue to use that building for kids and students safely and effectively and at the same time help rescue and restore women who've been trafficked? Remember, the power of a vision is that if it can be, then it must be. It must be. And if this pandemic has showed us anything in the last few months, it's that our box for ministry is way too small. It has turned ministry on its head. It's turned everything on its head, right? So we have, we've had to rethink everything and look at everything with fresh eyes. Over the last couple of months, I've been in, in discussions and meetings with Kelsey Deal, the executive director of the House of Cherith in Atlanta. She and her team have been out here multiple times. We have met with city officials. We have talked and we have planned. I've talked to the church council about this. I've talked to the executive team and to the larger staff. I couldn't really have this conversation with you until I was satisfied that the city was not going to stand in our way. I, I, once I met with the, with the city council, I didn't want them to say, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Don't ever bring that up again. And I didn't want to have bothered you with, with the burden of this. But now that we've gotten all those meetings out of the way, I am really, really, really excited to announce this morning that we are pursuing a unique, first-of-its-kind partnership to open up a satellite campus of the House of Cherith right here at Covenant Life. So still a lot of hoops to jump through, still a lot of plans to make, still a lot of things that we have to do between now and then. It's not a done deal by any means, but we could literally be on the front lines of this fight by early 2021. As a matter of fact, I, I, um, I would really like to do the ribbon cutting on Sunday, February 14th, Valentine's Day, uh, and I think that's very, very doable. Now, let me flesh this out a little bit because I know this is kind of coming out of the blue for, for, for most of you. Um, the House of Cherith is, um, uh, and if we have people joining us for the first time or in the house for the first time, sorry about that, y'all. This, this is vision. This is what the Lord's called us to do. So maybe it's good that you know right off the, right off the bat what you're getting into. Um, the House of Cherith receives women who have been rescued from HST. They work with the FBI, the GBI, Homeland Security. They work with uh, other agencies that are in Atlanta and organizations in Atlanta. Some organizations just do rescues. They just go in and extract them like a black op. And then they, once they have them, then they have to take them somewhere, and that's where the HOC comes in. So they, t they call them and say, we're planning a rescue. We should be there in 20 minutes. And, and so they start to get, they get ready. The woman is brought in to a phase one program where she receives medical, dental, gynecological, substance abuse, and medical and mental health assessments. Her legal issues are also assessed. She's kept in a safe house for seven to 10 days in case her trafficker comes looking for her. And we'll talk about that uh, more in just a few minutes, but, but they usually stop looking after seven to 10 days. She also goes through a detox program because 97% of the women who come to the HOC are addicted to some, some form of chemical, alcohol, or drug. It's, it's the way the traffickers keep them um, in bondage. At the end of the 30 to 45 days, she is safe, 
she's stabilized, she's sober, and she's ready to make a decision about what the rest of her life is going to look like. And, and she gets the opportunity to join a phase two program. A phase two program consists of helping her and walking with her as she works through her trauma. They, are, they work with her through her legal issues. They, they work with her to help her obtain job skills, obtain educational opportunities like GED or college or technical um, um, training as well. Would you understand that the average age for uh, entering the, the, the trafficking community in Atlanta is 13 years old? Then these these women did not get the chance to finish high school or not in any sort of way where they could be present to receive the education that was being offered. So they help them get education. They teach them life skills, coping skills, health and nutrition skills, personal finance skills, parenting skills, if that's appropriate. They help them gain a spiritual connection with the Lord as well. So they just come alongside these women, fill in the gaps of her need, and, and help her get ready to live a life that's free of HST. Now, what we would be housing here is a phase two program. Initially, there, there would only be about six women. Um, there are plenty of rooms up there that can be converted to bedrooms. Um, each woman would get her own bedroom. Uh, there would be HOC staff uh, on the premises 24-7. They would contract with a security company to provide armed security in the evening and overnight hours. We've already spoken with our police chief, and they are, they are prepared to, to work with us to meet whatever specific needs and challenges that we might face. Our ladies of the church and of the community would be welcome to volunteer as mentors, as teachers of classes, as transporters, just, just in, in other roles to volunteer and to serve these ladies and to help them on their journey. Now, in order to do that, we'll have to rezone that property that the Coley Building is sitting on. That, uh, that won't affect our ability to continue to use it for ministry. It only broadens the scope of that property zoning so that it can be used for residential. Um, I've already turned in the application to City Hall. They will begin to, the, to consider that application at tomorrow's zoning meeting, um, which is like, what, 530, I think, at City Hall. Rezoning is a, at least a three-month process. They, our neighbors across the street will be notified by mail that we have uh, asked to be, to be rezoned. They will put a lovely orange and white sign in our yard. There will be a couple of public hearings that the zoning committee will, will uh, host. After that, they will make a recommendation to, city, to the city council, um, either in favor of the application or opposed to the application. Either way, it goes to the city council for their final decision. Um, ultimately, it's up to the city council. They will also host um, a public hearing, and then they will make the decision. Once that's done, we'll work with the city codes inspector um, to make sure that everything that we need for that facility is up to codes and, and make sure we're good. Once we clear all those legal hurdles, then the House of Cherith has a decorator that will come in and set up each room and set them up to be incredibly warm and inviting and comforting to help these women uh, even the physical facility is set up to help them uh, along the way. They'll bring in the furniture, they'll bring in the furnishings, and, uh, and we'll go from there. Uh, I want to show you some pictures because they invited me up to the main campus a, a few months ago when they opened up the Mommy and Me 
space, which is their space for women who've been trafficked and their children so that they can be restored together. Um, this is the Mommy and Me facility, and you see where there's a, there's a main bed for the woman, and then there are other beds. As you scroll through, there are other beds for the children. Um, the same designer who, who did these rooms will be doing our campus as well, and, and she'll come in and get this all set up. So uh, it's going to be well done. And it's going, to be, uh, it's going to be great for these ladies. Now, as far as the facility is concerned for us, um, there's only two things that we know of right now that we need to do. As, as their team came through, uh, there were two things. One is we need to replace that outside wooden staircase, which we needed to do anyway. And we need to put in showers. Um, there are already multiple restrooms on that main floor and on the second, well, there's on every floor there's restrooms and on the main floor there's crawl space underneath. So putting in showers is not going to be a big deal. Now, let me, let me address some other concerns as well, because I know this is a lot and I know your brain is spinning and this is why I hadn't slept in like two months. Okay. So I, I get that. We've been thinking about this, planning for this for a while, and I want you to know that we're committed to, to, to making sure that this works for the church and works for the HOC. So let me address some of the concerns that I know will be top of your list. How are we going to keep our children safe on Sunday? Okay, if, if people are living in the building and we're doing kids' ministry, how is that going to work? And I want you to know that this has been my top priority in talking with, uh, with Kelsey through this partnership. So we have several safeguards in place, five as a matter of fact. Number one will be the vetting process that happens in Atlanta. The women that she selects for this campus, she'll be very intentional about that. Now, remember that these women have been rescued and have been traumatized. They are the victims of the crimes that have been committed against them. So the, it's not like these are child predators that are, that are on the prowl, okay? But are they traumatized? Yes. Do, are they unstable sometimes? Yes. So we'll, we'll want to make sure that we do have adequate protection. But she's going to do everything she can to, to be really intentional about who she selects for our campus. Number two, the schedule and everything that they do is scheduled every moment of every day and, and is carefully planned. And so they'll make sure the schedule reflects that they will be nowhere near the area of the building where our kids will be. All right. So the, as a matter of fact, they're going to be invited and encouraged to be in our sanctuary having church with us while our kids are up there having church. All right. Um, so they'll be here. The kids will be up there. Third, there will be a physical barrier that we can, that, that will be put up between um, the kids' ministry space and the residential space. Probably a door may already be in place. We just got to get all the, all the plans together, but there will be some physical barrier that separates the residential side from the ministry side. Fourth, we already had this in place pre-COVID, but we already have our own armed security in that building with our kids, that was already in place anyway. So as soon as we relaunch kids' ministry, then that person will be back in place as well. And then fifth, we have more than a dozen cameras in that building already. Again, something we were already doing because of the great work of Ronnie Smith and the security team that we have here. So those five safeguards are in place. We, we, will, we will do every reasonable, make every reasonable, reasonable precaution to make sure that our kids are safe. I have a nine-year-old. She's in that building for Kids Church as well. So I understand parental concerns, and we're going to do everything we can possibly do to, uh, to alleviate any fears or any concerns. 
and Caitlin and the kids ministry team we're already talking about relocating kids' ministry anyway to make it easier and safer and more convenient for the kids and easier for the parents as well. So we'll tell you all about that um, in, in just a few weeks, and the, the timing really is perfect. Now, that's kids' ministry. What about student ministry? Well, this pandemic has really sort of caused their ministry to be flipped upside down as well. They've rethought their structure, but to the extent that they are still going to meet some small groups in that building, again, There'll be a physical separation. The schedule will have the, the ladies in a different part of the building. And, and, and all, of those, uh, all of those precautions will be in place. Um, now, what about the safety of the community? Um, are we putting the community at risk? What if the ladies just walk out of the program? What if their traffickers come looking for them? Are we, are, are we going to be a threat to the community? These are the questions that, that we addressed with the city council a couple weeks ago. Um, they're legitimate concerns. This is our community too, and we, we want to be good neighbors and we want to be careful. So let me say this first of all, then I'll answer each of those questions individually, but let me say this first of all. Please don't be naive about the assumption of safety in our community. We are not, we are not, um, what do you call that? Yeah, well, yeah, it's not Mayberry, but, but we're not immune to this issue in our community, okay? It's here. It's here. Uh, our children are already at risk. How did our children get at risk? This right here, if they weren't already, puts every person in the world within reach of traffickers and groomers and people who are trying to recruit, Okay. Also, every seems like every month, local law enforcement agencies advertise that they've that they've made an arrest of somebody who has driven seven or eight hours to meet somebody here that they thought was an underage female and turned out to be an undercover police officer. Fortunately, but how many other people have we missed? And so, I, I want to make sure that you understand. And if you really want to get down to brass tacks about it, uh, 75% of the, shall we say, customers um, are middle to upper class white guys who live in a suburban area just like this one. So let's don't kid ourselves that, that we're in some sort of invisible bubble, okay? Just because we haven't seen it doesn't mean it's not here. Now, if anything, I hope this commitment to this issue, the education that we're going to provide, the awareness, the training uh, will, will um, actually serve notice to the traffickers that if you are looking for a place to expand, this is not the place because there's too many people here who are keen, who are aware, and who are actively looking, okay? So I, I hope that, that that will serve that purpose. Also, for those who are concerned that the traffickers will come here looking for those who've been rescued, um, it, it's really difficult to think about it this way, but remember, this is a business for them. It's a business for them. The traffickers in Atlanta make up to $35,000 a week. Thirty-five dollars a week. They will be angry. They will be looking for what they consider to be their property for about a week to 10 days. After that, they, don't, they can't afford to lose the revenue stream. So they'll just replace her because they're constantly grooming people anyway. They'll bring somebody else in to replace the revenue stream and move on. And also remember that in that seven to 10 day window, they're in a safe house in Atlanta anyway. They will never be brought straight here from the streets. 
Now, if a woman chooses to leave the program, there is an exit process that she goes through. If they want to go to another program, if, if the lady wants to go back home, if she wants to go to some other safe place, then that process helps her get there. The HOC will even pay her transportation or take her there themselves to make sure she gets to a safe place. But if the off chance that some woman just walks straight out the door, says, I'm done, let me go, and she walks straight out the door, I want you to think about it from her perspective for just a moment. If she walks out those glass doors up there or that basement door up there, at least in terms of her experience, she might as well be on Mars. Like what around here looks familiar to her? Bremen, Georgia will be as far away from what she's accustomed to as you can possibly be. Just think about it. Most of these women have been trafficked on Fulton Industrial, in College Park, some downtown high-rise. If they walk out these doors here, they're, they're not going to see anything that's familiar. And women who want to return to the life, and it's not uncommon, but people who want to return to the life are going to call their trafficker, or they're going, to call, they're, they're going to find a ride back to their track, their territory, where they're used to that geography, they're used to uh, their clients, and they know how to get restarted again. I think the chances of her trying to build some sort of criminal enterprise here is very, very slim. What are the other concerns, John? Well, uh, are we selling them our building? No. Um, are we losing any capital, any property value? No. If anything, I think it'll make the property value increase. Is, is the church at any sort of disadvantage? None that I can see whatsoever. We are leveraging every resource that we have to do what God has called us to do. Rearranging some things to serve the greater purpose of God's kingdom is not a disadvantage. If anything, the opposite of that is true. Now, I want to tell you what's happened in the last seven months since I announced the Jericho Project. Um, not only have we raised over $40,000 for the Jericho Project, so that fund is sitting at about 42000 as of this week, I think, um, and that's a wonderful thing. Not only have we been able to raise that money, but, but the giving to the church in tithes and, tithes and offerings has also significantly increased in the midst of a pandemic. Okay, so I want you to kind of wrap your head around that. We're not only ahead of, uh, ahead of where we were last year at this time in the midst of a pandemic, but we also have 40-something thousand dollars in the Jericho Project account. John, how do you explain that? Well, really only two things that I can think of. First of all, in the Jericho prayer, the I of, Jer of the Jericho prayer was that we ask God to increase the giving to our church, the tithing and giving to our church, because we can't do something for the community or for the world if we, if we are closed down. So I asked, we asked the Lord, all of us together, to increase that, and he has. It's just an answer to prayer is the only thing I can tell you. The second thing is, from a leadership perspective, when you clarify the vision, people have a chance to either buy in or buy out. And, and if they want to buy out, they just walk away, or they rally to the vision. And, and apparently, most people have chosen to rally to the vision. They, people like clear vision, and the vision here is clear. We have to rescue and restore and put a stop to HST once and for all. And, and I think that we're about to, to, to be amazed at what God's going to do if we'll be faithful to the call that he's placed on this church. Say, so, John, what about the original uh, Jericho project? Well, what are we going to do with the building? Same thing. It's still on. 
even more than ever, as a matter of fact. We'll spend whatever we have to spend to get the Jericho Project, get this, this uh, campus up and running, and then we'll be right back to saving everything we can for phase one, getting the, the hazmat out. Phase two is the demo, and just keep moving forward. But here's what I think is going to happen. Um, I am not rich. I have not, have not ever been rich. But people who are people of means like to see effort on the part of the people who are raising funds. What I think is going to happen is that people will see that we've leveraged every square foot of our property. We've done everything that we have in our hand to join this fight. And, and, and that we're serious about it. And what I think is going to happen is that makes people even more generous and makes them even more likely to give towards this cause because we're using what's in our hand. Okay? So let me wrap this up as quickly as I can. Uh, Corey, can you, can you play? Is that, we're not going to mess anything up. We do we'll find out in a second. All right. So let me wrap this up. Here's three things that I'd like for you to do, if you would. First of all, I need your trust. I need your trust. Those of you who know me know that I am as careful and methodical as they come. I am painfully boring. You can ask my wife. 34 years together. If this feels reckless, if this feels too fast for you, please know that I have been praying and planning and pursuing this since April. Also, please know, I'm not creating this out of, the, out of the clear blue sky. I haven't just sat down and scratched my temples and said, hmm, I wonder how to start a program for trafficked women. We're partnering with somebody who's been doing this for years already, okay? So we're not just making this up. But I also have to be really honest with you, I am ruined. I'm ruined when it comes to this issue. I've read books. I've read studies and reports and articles incessantly since we started talking about this issue in general, but specifically in the last couple of months, all of my, uh, of my downtime has been spent in this issue. I've watched movies. I've watched documentaries. Uh, I am ruined. I can't unlearn what I've learned I can't unsee what my eyes have been opened to. When I lay down at night and I close my eyes, I see the faces of these girls, of these women that I've imagined as I've read through the research that I've been doing, and I pray that God will protect them. I pray that God will raise up a deliverer, will raise up a rescuer, will raise up a restorer for these people. As my day is ending, I recognize that theirs is just getting started. And I would also say this before I move on to the second thing. July 4th was 23 years that we've been at this church. And my family and I have given our lives in the last 23 years for this church. Please trust that I am going to do what's in the best interest of this church and the people of this church. But listen, what you want me to do as your pastor, I hope what you want me to do is to find out what God is saying and lead all of us in that direction. Because at the end of the day, we can have good church from now until Jesus comes. But if we don't do what he says to do, if we don't, if we don't get outside the walls of this church, if we don't go make a difference in somebody's life, then what have we been doing? So is there a safer way? Absolutely. 
But this is what he's called us to. We have to join this fight. And I believe this is what we're called to do. And I can't do anything else but pursue it passionately and aggressively until finally the door is just closed. As long as God keeps opening doors, we have to keep walking through. Why? Because they've suffered long enough. They can't wait another day. They need help right now. Say, John, listen, you're being a little dramatic. This is just six women. It's life and death for those six. And there's somebody's daughter and there's somebody's sister, and there's somebody's niece. Those six mean the world to somebody. And if nobody else here on this earth, they mean the world to the one who created them and created a plan and a purpose and a destiny for their lives. So if you can extend some trust, I would appreciate that. Secondly, pray. Pray. Pray like you've never prayed before. Pray for wisdom and knowledge and the discerning of spirits. Pray for favor and for understanding. Pray for cooperation and collaboration. Pray the Jericho prayer from the Jericho Project website. We don't have all the details worked out. Listen, this is a fluid situation. We are pursuing this, but this is not a slam dunk. The city council and I had a two-hour informal conversation. They have not given us their approval. They, they, there's no wink, wink, stuff. There's no under the table stuff. We are just following the process and we're walking through the open doors. Please continue to pray and ask that God would have his will through this whole thing. We don't even have all the details worked out with the HOC. They've never done anything like this, but they are over the moon about the opportunity to help six more women or 10 or 12 or how, whatever the capacity eventually can be. But Kelsey and I are both committed to making sure that this works that it makes sense for both the HOC and for Covenant Life so that we can both continue to do what he's called us to do. And here's the last thing that I'd like for you to do. Would you please learn? Don't just trust me and don't just pray. Please learn. I posted a resource list several weeks ago on the church website, on the Facebook page, on the Jericho Project page. Please start educating yourself about this issue especially if you have concerns, especially if you have reservations, please start learning. And I believe when you do, you'll understand my passion and my urgency to do what we can with what's in our hand. And if you can only read one book, and I don't, I don't pull the pastor card very often at all, but as your pastor, I'm asking everybody to read. If you're only going to read one, then read this one. It's called Rescuing Hope. Here's a picture of the cover. Rescuing Hope by Susan Norris. I found out today at the end of the first service that we've got a couple in our church that just joined that went to, went to church with Susan Norris. They're in a prayer group with Susan Norris. Please read this book. It is easy to read in the sense that the, the writing is excellent, the vocabulary, the story, it, it pulls you along. I read it, it my 15-year-old read it in a day. I read it in a day. It's a page-turner. It is a fictionalized story that's based on hundreds of interviews. It's set in Atlanta. So I can promise you this is not a story that you're going to forget. Okay? 
please read this, read this book. It's on Amazon. I don't know of any other source. Uh, I don't know of any electronic source. So you just have to order it from Amazon. If you can't afford it, if you are willing to read it and you can't afford the 10 or $15 that it'll be to get the book, please tell me and I will send you the book. Okay? I, that is, I'm not kidding. I don't know how many's watching on Facebook. I don't care. If you are willing to read it and you can't afford it, let me know and I'll get you the book. We've already got a couple of copies that are, that are ready to circulate. I need everybody to read it because it's going to answer a lot of questions. Now, and if I may be so bold, I need some men who are willing to step up and get passionate and get vocal about this issue. When I have posted it on the church Facebook page, which I will do every Sunday night at 630, there will be something that comes out every Sunday night about this issue When I've done it, I've gotten lots of comments, lots of shares, lots of likes, lots of interaction with women, almost none from men. This crime is being perpetrated all around the world. I won't even give them the the dignity of the term man by males. And I want you to make no mistake about it. This This is about power and status and domination. And we need some real men of God who will stand up and show the world what real power and real authority and real integrity is all about. Okay? So men, please educate yourself and get involved like it was your daughter or like it was your sister. Okay? We're going back to the scripture and we'll close. Exodus chapter 3, verse verse 7, verse 10. I'm going to read it a little bit differently. The Lord told him, I've certainly seen the oppression of my people. I've heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. I am aware of their suffering. Verse 10, I am sending you. You must lead my people out. Chapter 4, verse 2, the Lord asked, what is that? in your hand. That's what I'm asking you today, Covenant Life. What is that in your hand? It's not a shepherd's staff. What we have in our hand is the power to change the lives of women who are in slavery right now. Some of them, maybe even in this county, thousands of them, 40 minutes from here. We have the power to help. My invitation to you today is let's come together. Let's lock arms. Let's get united behind this. We have no idea really what we're going to face. We simply know that this is God's call for us. And I'm inviting you to join me. Would you stand with me? We pray that you have been blessed and inspired by today's Covenant Living broadcast. To find out more information about our ministry, just visit our website at www.covenantlifewestga.org. You can find this video there on our homepage. Just click the YouTube button and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. And give us a call at 770-537-3747. That's 770-537-3747. At Covenant Life, our mission is to go and make disciples by being real, relational, and reaching. Be sure to join us next week for more Covenant Living with Pastor John Butler.